Stephen Marsh is a novelist, essayist, and cultural commentator. He is the author of half a dozen books and has written opinion pieces and essays for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, Welcome The Walrus, and right many others. He lives in Toronto with his wife and children. And On Writing and Failure is his latest region. book. And Your it is the latest in a series of essays called Irene The Moore Field Davis, Notes, author, published educator, by Biblioasis. Kim Conklin, Windsor-based writer and filmmaker. And me, Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair. Stephen Marsh is a novelist, essayist, and cultural commentator. He is the author of half a dozen books and has written opinion pieces and essays for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, The Walrus, and many others. He lives in Toronto with his wife and children. On Writing and Failure is his latest book. And it is the latest in a series of essays called The Field Notes, published by Biblioasis. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, nice to be with you. So this may seem like a mean question, but we'll see if it makes sense later. How long have you been failing at writing and what were your first attempts? Well, it's pretty much since the beginning. So when did I start when I was like 10 or 11? So a long time, a long time, 30 years, 30 plus years of failure. A lot. Yeah, a, a long time. As long as I can remember, I've been failing at writing. <laughs> So to be clear by failure, you're not talking about the corporate idea of a certain number of failures until success hits, are you? No, I mean, I don't think, I think writing is sort of different from other activities, a lot of other activities in that it's not, um, failure is not something that you sort of endure to get to the good parts, but something that is sort of continuous with the process of, of writing. Really, I mean, that's sort of the conclusion that I came to the book. So, yeah, there's definitely this kind of like there's a lot of like a, there's a lot of podcasts where it's like, let's talk about our failures and like celebrating our failures. And um, that's not really what this is about. Like, I think in the in the creative professions generally, but in writing specifically, failure is more is, is something more enduring and more permanent than it is. And then when people talk about it in those terms. In this long essay, you talk about writers pairing themselves up as comparative examples. That is, one writer using another writer's woes as an example mm -hmm. of how hard it is to live as a writer, such as 18th century writer Samuel Johnson and his frenemy, Richard Savage. Mm -hmm. Who would be your comparative example of a struggling writer? You don't have to mention anyone living. Jeez, that's an interesting question. I mean, I don't really. Like there, there, there are some really interesting examples of people who write about other writers as a way of writing about themselves. Like so that Samuel Johnson um, did that with Savage, right? For example, and I think um, you know, uh, for for A.M. Klein, like A.M. Klein wrote a series of lectures on James Joyce, which really were just about himself, right? Like, 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 why won't the world take James Joyce seriously? Why doesn't James Joyce? Why can't James Joyce make a living? But it was really like, why can't A.M. Klein make a living? I mean, I think I've sort of gone more for the jugular with this book. Like, I've I've been sort of. I haven't deflected, like I haven't said, well, let me talk about this person over here who's failing. I'll talk about my own and I'll talk about other people like, you know, it, generally. So like, I mean, it, I guess the answer is I've sort of have the, a lot of 
failure doubles. Like these, like these, like the the book is actually full of all of these different examples. I'm not sure I, I could pick just one. Fair enough. Who would write your literary biography? Do you think? Oh God! I mean, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, someone clearly not interested in a lot of money. Um, like, I, I, I mean. No, I have no idea who could do such a thing. Like, I have, I have absolutely no idea who could do such a thing. But then, who, who, who I'm not sure those are going to exist anymore <laughs> in the future anyway. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I have no idea who would write. That's an interesting about. point. Yeah, yeah. I, the way we write and think about writers will be different in the future, do you think? Yeah, well, and I think um, those literary biographies are a, a particular function of even things like archives, right? Where like you have like set boxes of paper books and paper and printed materials to go through to understand like letters. Like, you know, like the, the, the way of literary biography works is you go through a person's letters and find out all the dirt and put it in a book. But, you know, I, were you going to go through my email? Like my Gmail account? Like my Gmail account's like, that, that's like a like I can't keep up with it now in real time. I don't know how anyone would ever would ever go through it, right? So I think uh, that particular genre, I I don't I'm not sure what the future holds for it. Well, speaking of past, present, and future, you did extensive research for this piece and bring in the stories of classical writers and ancient texts here. Why was it important for you to incorporate these examples? Well, I wanted, you know, they, they sort of did, um, you know, I had the examples before, right? Like, it wasn't like I had the idea of the book, and then I was like, I'll go figure this stuff out. It's like, these were stories that I kind of kept a, not a, a common book of, like, I, film, like, I would think about these examples a lot in my own life, just as a way of offering consolation to myself. Because I do think, like, even though this is sort of a... Um, a somewhat cynical book and like certainly a hard-headed book that's not afraid to look things in the face uh at the same time i think it's um it's definitely meant to be consoling like it's and these stories are the ones that have offered me consolation as well um you know i also wanted to get a sense of cosmopolitanism in time and space right i wanted i really wanted to know that like this is not something that is like you know happens in 21st century North America or 21st century or the 21st century at all. This is something that like Ovid had to deal with and Lee Bai had to deal with and James Baldwin had to deal with and, um, you know, Abul Kasef in the 11th, I mean, Abul Kasef wrote like, you know, he's an 11th century epic poet from Persia. His last line is about like trying to get paid as a freelance writer. Right. I mean, like, you know, like, like it's like, I mean, it's, it's shockingly, like right this is the way this is the way it has always been everywhere um for almost all time right so um i definitely wanted there to be um a sense of like it, it's not just limited to certain canons or certain certain places or certain times it's actually a, a, a kind of not necessarily universal but something that you can see in in constellations everywhere that th that there is the act of writing so you write journalism, you write um, other kinds of books, and also you're a columnist. Which kind, type of writing comes easily to you or best to you? Well, what comes easiest is not, I mean, uh, like a column writing is very 
easy for me. Like I've, like I've never found it. I've always found it extremely easy to do. And um, like, I, I'm not sure that's a compliment to myself. I mean, I don't know if that's vain or not, but like, like if you want to write a thousand, if you want someone to write you a thousand word column um, and you need it done by this afternoon, I'm your boy. Like you just call me up and it'll be good and it'll work and it'll, and it'll get attention. And that's good. That's not necessarily what I, what I necessarily want to do either. Um, or that's and I, it's definitely not what I would consider my best work which is, you know, often very minor stuff that no one has read or very few, like very few hundreds of people have read. Um, so what I do best and what I do easiest are not, not necessarily the same thing for me. It depends. That's your take on the writing life, that the only substantial truth of human behavior goes double for the writing life. Without giving away too much, what does this depend on? Well, you know... I Life, it seems like we we have these lies that we tell children, right? Not just writing. We, we, we definitely tell a lot of lies to young writers, for sure. Um, but we tell lies to just children in general that it's like, if you work hard and, you know, like, we, that, you, that you have a lot of agency over everything. But when you're a writer, you really don't have a lot of agency over what you do. You have a very limited control over the outcomes of your craft. Um, you have very little, you certainly have very little agency over what you might call a career, right? Particularly in, in, this, in this period where there's just constant technological change and like you prepare for one career and then you realize, oh, it doesn't exist anymore. Like that, and, and that happens to, that happens to a lot of people. Um, you know, I think life is actually circumstances, right? Like, like it's a combination of your actions and your talent and your work with external stimuli that's the that's the reality of this situation which for some reason we find it incredibly hard to tell people and 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 it, and, and and like that that's and that that's okay right and that that's like that's just actually the way these things work so what it depends on is actually factors that are just you know totally you know out of your control some of them are not, are in your control and you can do those ones but um, certainly in writing, I think you, you, you see very clearly that like, when you look at people's literary careers, you, under, you understand that their, um, their actions had very limited effects on their outcomes, right? I mean, when you think that like James Joyce was never able to make a living from writing, right? Or that, you know, Melville, you know, Melville got better at writing his whole life. Right. Like every book was pretty much better than the one before, I think. I mean, I even think after Moby Dick, he still he still was getting better. Um, and he made like he just could not get published at the end. Um, so like the better he wrote, the worse he did. Right. And that's and, and that's you know, I think that's part of the reality of this business that you have to be you, you know, you should be frank with people about. So, yeah, it depends on a lot of things. And another hard part of writing is writer's block. Is that a problem or a gift, do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a very new concept, right? Like, it's, it's, there was no such thing as writer's block until Samuel Taylor Coleridge. So it's like 200 years old. And, um, like, before then, it was just called not having anything to say, right? Like, that's what, like, that, like, that's what it was called, right? And I think that's actually probably a better name for it. I mean, uh, like, I think... Um, what ha writer's block is when happens when people really start to take writing super seriously, like as a spiritual cosmic activity. 
um, that they consider, you know, holy and that has these sort of immense pressures on them. I mean, the thing that I do really did find interesting in the book is that as I was, you know, doing some researching some of these stories is like the writers who really were given everything, like who they really like they had sort of graduated from the business of uh, of having a career like Ralph Ellison, who wrote The Invisible Man, like he could have written anything after that. They would have published it and it would have been acclaimed. Um, similarly, like the guy who wrote uh, Joe Gold's Secret for The New Yorker, like, you know, he was considered, he was outright considered the greatest magazine writer of his time, never wrote again. Neither of those people ever wrote anything again, right? Like they, like they just, in some sense, they couldn't because the stakes had been raised to the point where at the actual use of language seemed ludicrous, right? And they could only, they could only fail to live up to those expectations. Um, but there's also something I think where to write in order to write, in order to have a motive to write, you need to, there needs to be resistance, you know, like you need to actually, there needs to be something where it's like, well, I'm going to show those people, you know, I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm going to show them what they, I'm going to tell them what they don't know. Right. And, um, I, I think writer's block is when you, like, it seems to me anyway, from looking at it from a historical point of view is that it tends to come when the resistance goes away. It's interesting. So success can almost be a failure in a, in a way of its own. So that's, I mean, that's how cruel this business is. Like, like even if you're success, like the success can actually make it impossible to write. And those, I mean, those are the actual best examples. Like torturing people, that doesn't stop them from writing. That makes them better, right? Like giving them everything and saying, go forth and, you know, do whatever you want. That destroys them, right? And so that's like, that's, that's, a, a kind of maybe a sign that what we're involved in here is perhaps not particularly healthy as a human activity. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you also talk about the marketplace and its influence. Um, mm -hmm. You talk about the marketplace doesn't test talent, it tests timing. What timing has worked best for you? And maybe what kind of timing works best for different things? Well, you know, I was writing a book about the possibility of a civil war in the United States and January 6th happened. That would be good timing. Um, I wrote a book about how we should all, the gender wars and the uh, the false dichotomy between, like the, 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 the line between men and women was getting close and we were all gonna be more uh, intimate and we were all going to, our politics was, our gender politics was gonna enter a, a bright new stage of understanding. And I published that months after Donald Trump was elected. That would be bad time, right? Like that would be that would be the worst possible timing. I mean, you know, I had a friend who was writing a book about the Brooklyn Nets, right? And like I was watching, you know, when they were a super team, when they had all these when they had all these great players, and I was I was watching and when Kevin Durant stepped on the line and missed the three-point shot, um that meant that his book was not going to sell. Right. Like it was like that. That's it. Like it was it was I was I was thinking I was looking. I was like, wow, this, this all of that work he's done, like all of that incredible research, the like two years he spent working on this thing. The moment that ball left his hand, it all got erased. Right. And that's not his fault. It has nothing to do with his craft. It has nothing to do with his. It's just that's those are the circumstances. I mean, Sam Sifton, great New York Times food writer, love that guy's writing. You know, he published a book called like getting together for the halt, like big family cookbooks. He published it COVID one month later, right? Like, like, like it's like he's got the publishing date and then COVID, like he publishes it. I think COVID was actually like a week later 
It's like, yeah, I published a cookbook about big family dining, eating with friends. For two years, no one's illegally allowed to do that. So, you know, like this is what I would say about timing, right? Like there's sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. <laughs> so I want to include a bit of a trigger warning here. Um, you yeah. do address mental health issues and suicide by writers. Why was yeah. it important to include that sensitive information? Well, I think, um, uh, you know, first of all, there's a sort of um, shay that writers need to suffer and that mental illness is actually like a, a conduit to creativity, right? And this is like a very deep, I mean, it goes back to the romantic period. It goes back to a lot of things, but it was certainly around when I was a kid where, you, you know, people were thought that it was better to be an alcoholic to write or it was better to be, you know, like if you were an alcoholic, that meant you were a better writer, or if you were, you know, drug culture, the same thing, or mental illness, like that these were these kind of marginal people that therefore had some kind of sacred voice, if you will. And that's a canard. Like, it's just, I, and I think it was really important in this book to be very clear, like, you know, you don't, suffering does not make anyone write better. Being an alcoholic doesn't make anyone write better. Being mentally ill, like David Foster Wallace is a really, you know, who's the main example in the case, in in the book, is like when the, he was on his meds, when the Nardo was working, um, that those were his productive periods. When he had mental health problems and he got off his meds and he couldn't get back on them, that's when it all fell apart. And it certainly wasn't a boon to creativity. So, you know, I also think like, Mental health and writing, like they, this is a tough game. And if you're going to do it, you have to kind of be aware of the potential mental health problems the same way that if you're in a, um, if you work in a, in a, in a uh, sawmill, you should be aware of lose, that you might lose a finger. You gotta, you gotta pay attention. Like you gotta be, you gotta be careful about this stuff. Um, so yeah, like I would say that those were the two the two reasons I included it also because, you know, um, it, it is like a, a certain particular kind of failure. That's usually the one attached to writing. Right. And, and, and I, I, I wanted to end that attachment. I don't think it makes any sense at all. I'm quoting you here. I don't want to overquote you, but they're so great. So a fact that no one seems able to tell young writers the quality of your writing will have very little effect on your career. And yet it is the only thing that matters. So at public readings, writers are always asked, what advice do you give to emerging readers? So is this a book of advice to emerging readers or is it the book of anti-advice to emerging readers? What do you usually say? Do you mean emerging writers or? Uh, yeah, emerging sorry, emerging writers. Em yes. Emerging writers. <clears throat> I don't, I mean, I don't really give advice. I mean, as I say in the book, like good writers offer advice, great writers offer condolences, right? I mean, like the, the, the motto, the two, the two quotes that really begin the book, one is from James Baldwin, which is really the spirit guide of the book, which is like, you know, don't, I don't have any advice. If you're going to write, you're going to write, you're going to do what you're going to do. And if I can't dissuade you to do it and I can't encourage you to do it and make no difference to you, whether you one way or the other, he's totally right. Um, the other one is, you know, George Orwell, which I think is really the, when I came across this quote, like I really cannot stop thinking about it is that, um, 
you know, any life when seen from the inside is nothing but a series of defeats, right? And which is which is a hugely profound idea, I think, and and so so true. You know, what I would what I want for this um, for this book to do for emerging writers, I mean, what I would hope they could take away from it was a couple things. One is the feeling of being a failure that you have now is never going to go away. Right. Like, it's not like it's not like you're going to get to the promised land and then that'll be it. Like, and then you'll be done and you'll feel suddenly you'll feel like, oh, I made it and I don't have to worry about a thing anymore. That's never going to happen. Like, it doesn't happen to anyone. Like, I mean, the opening story is about Philip Roth and it's like it didn't happen for him. Right. So like and it didn't happen. Like it didn't happen for Shakespeare. Like he sat around wondering why didn't they produce Troilus and Cressida? Like, you know, it, it didn't happen for Keats. It didn't happen for. Melville didn't happen for any of these people. Like, why would it, why would it happen for you? Um, like that's the other thing. And the other thing is like, this is the cost. Like you should also know that like you're doing the same thing that all those people are doing. You are, as long as you're writing and you're trying and you're persevering, like you're the same as them. You're engaged in the same activity as them and you should be, and, and you should be proud of that. Right. Like you should be like, you should not like you like tr getting out there and getting, you know, the stuffing kicked out of you is nothing to be ashamed of. It really like that's that, that's not a sign of that, that you're bad or that you're or that you're um, or that you're wrong. That's a sign that you're there. And, you know, and, and like that's and that's worth that's worth doing. That's worth that's worth that's valid in itself, really. You you also talk about that we should envy better, be scrupulous in your envy. Mm. So would you let us envy you in this writing success? Um, we'd like to invite you to read a little bit of this book. Sure. Um, I'll just I'll just read right from the beginning then. Is it ever easier? A kid writer asked me recently. Do you ever grow a thicker skin? She was suffering, poor thing, after a gorgeous essay about the death of her mother had been rejected by every outlet that could publish it. I had no answer, so I told her a story. Just before the outbreak of COVID, Nathan Englander, the short story writer and novelist, had moved into my neighborhood in Toronto, and we would sometimes sit around my backyard fire pit drinking and complaining. Is it ever easier, I asked him one night? Do you ever grow a thicker skin? At the time, some magazine editor had fucked me over, I forget about what. Englander had no answer, so he told me a story. He had been lunching with Philip Roth once. Is it ever easier, he asked Roth. Do you ever grow a thicker skin? Englander was then about to release a new novel, always a toxically anxious period. Roth didn't need a story. He had an answer. Your skin just grows thinner and thinner, Roth told him. In the end, they can hold you up to the light and see right through you. Failure is the body of a writer's life. Success is only ever an attire. A paradox defines this business. The public only sees writers in their victories, but their real lives are mostly in defeat. I suppose that's why in the rare moments of triumph, writers always look so out of place, posing on the book's page in their half-considered outfits with their last-minute hair, desperately upping their most positive reviews on Instagram, or at the strange ceremonies of writing prizes, like the Oscars for lumpy people, grinning like recently released prisoners readjusting themselves to society. Failure is big right now, a subject of commencement speeches and business conferences like FailCon, at which triumphant entrepreneurs detail all their ideas that went bust. But businessmen are only amateurs at failure, just getting used to the notion. Writers are the real professionals. 300,000 books are published every year in the United States alone. A few hundred at most could be called financial or creative successes. 
The majority of books by successful writers are failures. The majority of writers are failures. And then there are the would-be writers, those who have failed to be writers in the first place, a category which, if you believe what people tell you at parties, constitutes the bulk of the species. For every Shakespeare who retired to the country into permanent fame, there are a thousand who took hard breaks and vanished. George Chapman, the first translator of Homer, begging in the streets because his patrons kept dying on him. Thomas Decker, whose hair went white in debtor's prison. And my personal favorite, the playwright John Webster, whose birth and death dates in the Dictionary of Literary Biography are question marks, symbolic hooks into oblivion. He wrote The Duchess of Malfi, and nobody knows where he came from or where he ended up. I am writing this essay because I would like somebody to be halfway honest about what it takes to live as a writer, in air clear from the fumes of pompous incense. The first job of a writer is to write. The second job is to persevere. If you want to write, or if you want to know what it's like to write, you're going to have to walk away from the pass of glory into the dark wilderness, because that's where it is. There you go. Stephen Marsh, thank you for joining us. The book is On Writing and Failure, and it's available from Biblioasis. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.